Well, good morning, Chili Bible. Um, I am, uh, I'm Joe Horn. I'm one of the pastors here at Chili Bible. If you're new with us, we're excited that you're here. Um, you're with us for the midpoint of a, a study we've been going through, taking us through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from the first book to the last book, and showing how all of the story of the Bible fits together to tell one big story that we're calling the greatest story ever told. And what we have seen so far, uh, we began with creation, is that God made the world perfectly and He put uh, a perfect human be- uh, pair of human beings into a garden in a perfect place. Uh, but then they fell into sin. And when they fell into sin, God promised that there would be a deliverer who would come, who would be born the seed of the woman and who would come uh, and, and set the world right again and bring an end to sin, and to bring an end to death that resulted from the fall. Well, generations passed, and that person did not yet arise. And the earth and its people got more and more wicked and more and more rebellious against God, and so God brought a flood, and out of that flood He saved one family, Noah and his family, and started over with the world as a clean slate, except that sin was still present. And so even though Noah was the deliverer of humanity and the deliverer of the remnant of the animals and the birds, uh, he was not the deliverer that was promised because sin still remained in the world. And so God decided to, to create His own people, beginning with Abraham. He promised that through you, I'm going to get create out of you a mighty nation and I'm going to create a people through you. And through you and your people, The blessing to all nations is going to come and the deliverer is coming through your line. Well, Jacob, I mean, uh, Abraham got to be an old man, got to be 100 years old, hadn't had the promised son yet, but eventually he and his 90-year-old wife, believe it or not, had a miracle baby. And that son was named Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob had... 12 sons, and that's a whole story in and of itself how that occurred. Uh, but those, Jacob and his 12 sons wound up d- due to a famine down in Egypt where, they, where Egypt was being ruled over by one of the 12 sons who'd been sold into slavery by his brothers. And they wound up down in Egypt with him, and they were saved from the famine, and they remained there in Egypt for many, many years. They were, in fact, after just a few years of being there, their entire family and all of their descendants were captured and sold as slaves in Egypt. And they remained slaves for 430 years. Until God raised up Moses to lead them out. And they were led out. They were delivered on Passover night through the blood of sacrifice, through the blood of the Lamb offered on their behalf. And God gave them new life as they passed through the water and came into relationship with Him. And then God gave the law to tell them how to live in relationship with Him. And of course, they realized very quickly that they can't live up to that. And so there was a need, an ongoing need for sacrifices. And all this time, for all these hundreds and even thousands of years, we're looking for that deliverer to come. And He hasn't come yet. Word of encouragement. Hang in there, he's coming. you got a few more weeks, all right, and you'll meet him. But uh, this week you're going to meet a guy with the same name as this deliverer who is going to come 
and his name is Joshua. That's the Hebrew form, okay, or Yeshua, uh, if you want to be precise. Okay, comes in English as Joshua. And also, you're going to uh, hear about these guys called Judges. Okay, now, along the way, as we go through this story, what we're trying to do is a couple things. I want to, first of all, to show you how the whole Bible fits together and how it tells, in the midst of all of its uh, individual stories, how it is about the process of telling this one story of how God promised a deliverer and how the deliverer came through the people that God promised He would come from, and how He was then able to deliver people from every tribe and every nation and all languages all over the world uh, as God delivered on that promise of the deliverer. Now, today we're looking at the books of Joshua and Judges. There are two big books that tell us what happened in Israel's history between the time that they entered the promised land and the time when Israel went from a tribal confederation to a kingdom with a capital in Jerusalem. And to introduce that story, I want to show you just a short passage from the book of Joshua, which summarizes Israel's conquest of the promised land. So uh, I hope you have a Bible with you today. If not, we do have a stack of them uh, there in the back. Feel free to take one with our encouragement. Um, and uh, it'll, it'll be your gift from us, but if you're able, I'd invite you to stand now with me and read uh, and follow along as I read uh, Joshua chapter 11, verses 16 to 23. This is what the Word of God says. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Pollock, which rises towards Seir as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, um, these are books that for many people are hard to understand and hard for, uh, for us to put into, into place as where they, where they fit what kind of God that you are. Uh, Father, help us to see with clear eyes and to hear with open ears and to receive this morning from your word what you intend for us to learn and to know. And help us to love and know and obey Jesus better for having done so. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, 
First thing I want to show you in this book is that Jesus is the perfect Joshua who gives peace and permanent rest. Now, again, as I said, um, Jesus, Joshua, same name. You may not know that, but they are. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua. They both mean Yahweh saves. Okay? Uh, because it's an indicator of what role they play in Israel's history. They're both uh, given that same name. But Jesus is more than that. He is uh, the perfect Joshua who gives permanent peace and rest. Now, uh, this is the passage we just looked at is a quick summary of the book of Joshua, but let me give you some more details. Last week we looked very quickly at Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is uh, a book about that is Moses giving five sermons, and he is reviewing the uh, the details of Israel's history, and he is restating the law for them uh, to this new generation. See, the, the generation that came out under Moses with the Exodus, they have all died with two exceptions. Joshua is one of those. Caleb uh, is the other one. Uh, everybody else has died in the wilderness because they rebelled against God and would not go into the land. God had told them, it's time to go into the land that I promised to give you, and they refused to go in. They were afraid of these people that I mentioned here, the Anakim. Now you need to understand, uh, you know, when it says, uh, when it talks about them, they were people that, from the perspective of the Israelites, were giants. Now, based on archaeology, we know that the average Israelite was between four foot eight and five foot tall. Okay, so you don't have to be very big to be considered a giant, right? If you were six foot four, you were an absolute towering figure over a four foot eight man, right? Uh, but there were these guys, a bunch of them, in the land of Israel who um, were, from the perspective of the Israelites, giants. And they were scared of them, and they would not go in. And so for 40 years they wandered in the desert until all that generation died, with the uh, exceptions of Caleb and Joshua. Even Moses died in the, in the wilderness. He was not able to go into the promised land. Um, and the book of Deuteronomy, in fact, concludes with Moses' death and Joshua being appointed to lead the nation into the land. And just like 40 years before, Joshua sent in spies to explore the land. But unlike Moses, Joshua only sent two spies, not 12. And Joshua spent, sent spies to explore the land, but specifically concentrate their exploration around the area they were going to go into. So right across the river from them, the major city was Jericho. And so Joshua said, go explore, especially around the city of Jericho. And when they sent the spies in, these two spies were nearly caught. In fact, they would have been caught were it not for the actions of a former prostitute named Rahab, who had heard the stories of Israel's exodus and how God had provided for his people in the desert for all of these 40 years. And she believed in Israel's God. And she hid the spies and made them promise that when Israel came and took her city, that they would protect her and her family. Well, if you ever read a children's story, you know how this story 
out. All right, children's Bible, uh, been to Sunday school, you know this story, right? Or maybe you've heard it in a song. Joshua took the battle of Jericho, Jericho, right? Um, and the walls came tumbling down, right? You remember this, right? What they did was they marched around the city for seven days. All the people marched around the city. One lap, first day. Second day, they come back around, march around the city again. Third day, march around the city again. Fourth day, march around the city again. Fifth day, march around the city again. Sixth day, march around the city again. Last day, seventh day, they march around seven times. And at the, at the end of the seventh time, they blow trumpets. They blow a trumpet and they shout. And the walls come tumbling down. And in fact, they fought, I've been to Jericho and they've actually dug this up and, and you can see it. What happened is, is that there were these um, there were these uh, stone walls at the base, and then they had brick walls up above that. And when when Jericho fell, the outer, the top layer brick walls fell down, and it made like stair steps going up into the city. And the Bible records that every man went up straight ahead into him, and they took the city of Jericho. Now Rahab and her family became part of Israel. In fact, if you read carefully your genealogies in Matthew, you'll find out that Rahab and her family became part of Jesus' own lineage. In addition to Jericho, Joshua led the people of Israel to victory over 31 other Canaanite cities that they took. And through all of these things, God is using Joshua to show his people that his name is really true, that Yahweh saves, that as long as you trust me, I will deliver you and protect you. Now, uh, you may wonder why God is doing all this, why God is allowing Israel and even encouraging them to conquer these Canaanite people. And the answer is, very simply, that God is using Israel to punish the Canaanites for their sin and for their evil. If you want to know more about that, read Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20, God gives a list of all of these horrible things that the Canaanites are doing, including burning their own children to death in a fire in sacrifice to their God. That's part of the highlight reel uh, that's in there. And God says, it is because they are doing these things that I am sending you in to eliminate them and to take their land. But, lest you think that God is somehow unfair to the Canaanites in this, you need to remember this, that when Israel starts doing these same things later, God brings in the Babylonians and the Assyrians to take the land away from them for the same reason. That God will not allow people to continue in their evil on an unlimited basis. Um, but, what God was also doing was delivering on promise that he had made to Abraham that his descendants would possess this land. And 480 years after Jacob and his sons left for Egypt, they did. They possessed the land. But if you continue reading in the book of Joshua, what you'll see is that although Joshua did lead Israel to gain control over the whole area of the land, there were still portions of each tribe's tribal allotment that were left unconquered. 
And although the wars ended and the land was at peace, the people of Israel did not really gain in full the rest that God promised because the remaining Canaanites became a spiritual snare to the people with their idolatry and they remained their enemies and their oppressors at many points and in many times for years afterward. In fact, all of that detail is the subject of the next book we're going to look at, the book of Judges. But the writer of Hebrews picks up on this fact, the fact that Joshua gave some rest, but not permanent rest, and he draws application for us from it. And so uh, I want to look at it with a portion of it anyway with you. It's in uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 detail this, but I'm not going to look at all of that. But I do want to show you uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 6 to 16. And this is, this, is a, this is a key application of this, of this reality with Joshua to us today. Okay? This is what the Word of God says. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, that is, God's rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also, entered, has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, explain this a little bit, because I need to back up a little on Hebrews to, to give this to you. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish people, hence Hebrews. Uh, they have professed faith in Christ. The empire permitted Jewish people to refuse to worship the emperor. It began to see Christianity as a new religion that was distinct from Judaism, and it put Christians to death for their refusal to burn incense in front of the emperor's statue. So these Jewish people that are being written to in Hebrews are being tempted really hard to go back on their professed faith in Jesus and go back to Judaism. And Hebrews is written to tell them and to tell us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that Judaism was about. And that the fulfillment having come, there's no life in going back to it. You can't you can't go back to that earlier thing because it's been fulfilled now in Jesus. Uh, to go back 
on, in fact, to go back to Judaism after having professed faith in Christ is in some way to harden your heart in the same way as the Exodus generation did that didn't enter the land. And Hebrews is telling us, telling them, telling us, that rest didn't really come with Joshua either. Real rest comes from the one who has his same name. Real rest comes when we lay down all our attempts to gain it by our works and enter into the true Sabbath rest that God gives only through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. Let me show you this. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his. What that's telling you is this, is that Judaism was about, a lot of it was about doing good works. And, and the idea that a lot of people within it had was if I do good works, then God will save me. Now that was never true. Salvation was always by grace through faith in the sacrifice that God would make for your sins. But a lot of people thought, well, I just need to do some more good works. And Hebrews is saying, look, whenever you enter God's rest, you don't have to work anymore. Remember, just like God rested on the seventh day, you don't have to work anymore either. You don't have to uh, try really hard to be better. What you get instead is the real rest that God gives. Real peace. Real rest. No more trying really hard. What you get instead is an inner transformation that transforms the kind of person you become. And so you do your good works not in order to be saved, but because you are out of joy responding to God. And, and so if anyone thinks, well, I can gain salvation by my works, verses 11 13 to 13 will tell you what the... Uh, they give you a warning about that. Our disobedience to what we know about Jesus will keep us from experiencing the real rest that God is offering. Trying to gain salvation by your good deeds or by something other than Jesus will mean that instead of grace, instead you'll judge by the standard of God's Word, by someone who sees every hidden action, every thought in your heart. And so instead of that, what we get in verses 14 to 16 is an encouragement to draw near to Jesus. Jesus is the one who has real rest. Jesus is the one who gives grace. Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. And so even though the cost might be high to follow Jesus, as it was for these Hebrew Christians, many of whom were probably put to death for their faith in Christ, what you find with Jesus is mercy and grace instead of judgment with Him. And He is a sympathetic high priest. He's been tempted the same way we are. But there's grace with Him. So come to Him in faith. And reject the temptation to fall away from Christ and find grace and forgiveness and eternal rest and peace with Jesus. Because trying to do it on your own ain't going to work. Any more than you got rest with Joshua, you're not going to get rest from your own work. That's the idea. 
In fact, the way to, to lay all your laboring down is to come to Jesus. Jesus says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, remember? Rest. Rest. You don't have to keep doing. Keep striving. Keep hoping that, well, maybe I've done enough good things to counteract all the bad stuff that I've done. No, no. That's not how it works at all. It works when you come to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. When you find Jesus, you find the real rest that God was intending to give them a shadow of with Joshua. Jesus is also the perfect judge who delivers us from the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin and defeats all our enemies forever. Now, that brings us to the book of Judges. G, uh, Judges is the name of the book because Judge was the name given to these regional rulers that God raised up to deliver Israel at various points between Joshua's death and the establishment of the kingship. Now, Judges has a number of significant stories that are much beloved by Sunday school teachers. Uh, you can read... And its pages, how God used timid little Gideon and his army of 300 guys with clay pots and torches to defeat an army of 120,000 Midianites. This huge army shows up and Gideon sends out a call. Uh, hey guys, uh, we need to get the army together. 30,000 guys show up. And God tells Gideon, yeah, that's too many guys. And he says, tell all the guys that are afraid to go home. So 20,000 guys cut out. <laughs> right? And then he's left with 10,000, and God tells, tells Gideon, you still have too many guys. What? <laughs> I didn't like the odds when they were merely four times as numerous as we are. Now they're 12 times more numerous, and you tell me I still got too many guys? Yeah, yeah, take them all down to the river and, um, and the guys that lap water with their hands, take those guys. So he's left with 300 fellas. And then God tells him the battle plan. Okay, strap your sword to your waist and then go out around the camp at night with these clay pots and a torch. And then, and then at the right moment, you know, hold your torch kind of inside your clay pot, but at the right moment, Throw the clay pot on the ground and smash it and hold your torch out and, and shout a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And Gideon relays this to these guys and they go, seems like a good idea. Let's go. <laughs> and they do. Can you imagine being one of those fellows? Like, this sounds dumb. Let's do it. <laughs> right, um, but they trust the Lord and God delivers them from an invading army of 120,000 people you can read uh, if you look at your picture you'll see a guy holding a, a jawbone that's supposed to be Samson okay uh, Samson is a, as one of the other judges uh, the power of God filled Samson enabled him to slay a thousand Philistine warriors with a donkey's jawbone. 
It enabled him to pull down the gates of a Philistine city and carry them 38 miles on his back. 38 miles on his back to knock down a Philistine temple to a pagan god with his bare hands. You can read about Balak and Jephthah and Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar who defeated foreign armies and delivered Israel from oppression. But as you read this book, you need to know some things. First, though God does deliver Israel repeatedly and often miraculously, this is not a book that's meant to be encouraging. In fact, the theme of the book, which is repeated a few times so that you don't miss it, is in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did whatever was right in his own eyes. And it turns out that a society built on that principle that just everybody let their freak flag fly and do whatever is uh, right in your own eyes is not, a, is not really a good basis for a peaceful, um, you know, God-fearing, encouraging way of life. In fact, it's a complete rolling disaster from beginning to end. Israel, because they're all doing whatever is right in their own eyes, decide to turn to idolatry. And by idolatry, what I mean is this. The most popular gods back then were what were politely called fertility gods. Where you would go and pay a prostitute at a temple and it was not considered immorality, it was worship. Okay, now you could get a lot of adherence up for that. Um, that this was considered a holy thing, that you go, you go and engage in immorality at this temple with some sacred prostitute, either male or female, according to your preference. And they engaged in this kind of idolatry. They also engaged in child sacrifice. They engaged in all kinds of just perverse nastiness. And then God would allow them, because of that, He would punish them, allowing them to be oppressed by a foreign power. And then they would go, you know, this is a bad scene. We should repent and come back to God. So they would for a while, and God would deliver them. But then pretty soon, as soon as they were delivered, they would go back into sin again. God would raise up these judges to deliver them, and as soon as they were delivered, they'd be like, this is great! Back to idolatry. Okay? And, and so there's this endless spiral through the book. And actually things kind of spiral down and get worse and worse and worse. There's a rapid decline both in the quality of the people and of the judges that God raises up to save them. The early judges are pretty good. Guys like Shamgar and Othniel. These guys, these are, these are pretty good guys. Committed to the Lord guys. But later, you get worse ones. Balak is a timid general who didn't believe God's word when it was told to him by the prophet. The, the, uh, the, the judge Jephthah sacrificed his own daughter to God. Something that God did not command him to do or that ever crossed his mind to encourage. 
Balak, I mean, Jephthah thought this was a fine idea. Gideon became an idolater and a polygamist. I mean, he had 70 sons with a number of wives, okay? And encouraged all Israel to make, uh, to, make to, to bow down to this idol that he had made at the, at the end of his life. He also decides that even though Israel uh, wants to make him king and he, he decides, well, I won't be your king, and he tells them that gives them the pious answer, I won't be your king, God is your king. But he names one of his sons Abimelech which translates to, my father is the king. So what did he really think? Right? He thought, I'm a pretty big deal around here. Right? Uh, Samson never really understood God's call on his life. His sexual immorality was a snare to him throughout his life. Eventually he winds up in a relationship with a woman named Delilah who tries to kill him three different times before he gets the idea, and then he winds up blind and pushing a grain mill in a pagan temple. People wander far and farther and further away from God, and the book ends with the tribe of Benjamin. This is great. The tribe of Benjamin goes to war against all of the other 11 tribes of Israel because they want to protect the men of a Benjamite town called Gibeah who are engaged in a kind of immorality that is worse than the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. These are Israelite people. These are the ones through whom the Messiah is supposed to come, right? And yet that's what you find them doing. Tens of thousands of Israelite men die Benjamin is nearly wiped out as a result. And so the book of Judges concludes on a major, major downbeat. Leaving people looking for a good judge. One who will deliver the people not only from the consequences of their sin, but also from its power to dominate their lives and its presence within their hearts. And once again we're left wondering when the one God promised in Genesis 3 is going to actually arrive because it's very clear that none of these judges and judges really fit the bill. And that's another one of the reasons, by the way, that we have to rejoice in Jesus. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. Jesus is the just judge who delivers us from the power and the penalty and the presence of sin and defeats all of our enemies forever. I want to show you something from Romans chapter 6. We're doing a lot of flipping with this series, and it's because I'm not doing what I normally do, which is pick a passage and just go through it. Since we're covering giant chunks of Scripture, I've got to make my connections um, by skipping around for you. Um, we'll get back to that eventually, where we just find a, find a spot in the Bible and, and, and go to it. But for this week, I want to show you part of Romans chapter 6. This is verses 6 through 11. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And if we've died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. So, here's what you need to understand from that. Jesus died for our sin so that our sin could be killed with Him. So that when He dies, your sin dies with Him. That means is, is that because your sin died with Jesus, it was nailed to the cross with Jesus, then what that means is, is that you are freed from the oppressive rule of sin over you. So you don't have to live in slavery to it. You're not under its power anymore. Jesus delivers from sin's power. So you can therefore count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. And we're looking forward, and I won't show you this, but we're looking forward as Romans 8 reminds us to the day when everyone whom Jesus has declared righteous by faith is also made righteous completely. We are being made righteous right now. You who put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you and He transforms you and He makes you more and more like Jesus as you follow Him. But then we're also looking forward to a day, and the, the theological term for this is glorification. Okay, And glorification means that you will be just like Jesus forever and ever. And so you will be, you have been set free from the power of sin. You are being freed um, from, from the presence of sin right now. And you one day will be fully freed of the presence of sin. And you don't have to li live under sin anymore, even now. You don't have to sin. If you sin, it's because you chose to sin and to rebel against God. You're a believer in Christ. Don't do that. Repent of that. Turn from that. You don't have to live under its power anymore. You'll be set free one day from the presence of sin totally, and you will completely and totally reflect fully the glory of God. And beyond that, for us personally, God will get rid of every spiritual enemy that you have. I don't know if you know that or not, but that will happen. See, the Canaanites, the big problem with them was not that they were just a different group of people. The problem was that they were Israel's spiritual enemies and their idolatry helped to ensnare Israel into their evil. Like them, we have spiritual enemies. And Jesus' crucifixion deals with them. He deals with, first of all, our biggest enemy, which is the enemy within us. Right? Every, every act of sin and rebellion is an inside job, right? My biggest problem in my life, believe it or not, yours too, stares you in the mirror every morning, right? I can't, I can't eliminate enough, enough bad influences from my life to eliminate me from it, right? And so Jesus deals with the enemy within me. He gives me a new heart. But the book of Revelation also tells us that Jesus will act as a fully just judge and that He will dispense justice to our external spiritual enemies too. So 
I want to show you one more place. Uh, flip over to Revelation chapter 20. This is the last book in your Bible. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 and then uh, chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Okay? When, when God decides He's going to get rid of evil, He gets rid of it completely. This is what it says. Verses, beginning verse 7 of Revelation 20. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now that is God's just judgment against every wicked thing that there has ever been. God judges the wicked devil, his wicked minions, and all wicked people who follow him. And he judges them completely and continually for eternity. What will replace that, though, is something like this. Look at chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I heard, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, what this is telling us is this. Revelation 21 is about the real rest that's coming for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. No more crying, no more pain, no more death. It's not even the heavens and earth that those things occurred in still existing anymore. We have a new heaven, a new earth, the home of righteousness with the Lord forever. Because Jesus is the perfect Joshua who gives perfect and permanent rest free from every enemy. And He is the just judge who deals completely with sin and evil. In light of these things, how should we respond in faith to them? Number one, be sure, be sure to enter God's 
rest by faith in Jesus Christ. Let me repeat some of the book of Hebrews to you. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Do not reject the message you have heard about Jesus. If you've not yet responded in obedience to the truth you've heard by putting your faith in Jesus, you need to know you will not enter God's rest. There's an old bumper sticker that plays on the words no as the opposite of yes and no as the word for relationship. You've probably seen it. It goes, no Jesus, no peace. But if you know Jesus, you know peace. Right? If you don't know Jesus in a personal way, you will not have rest and peace for your soul either now or in eternity. And Hebrews says again, today, if you hear His voice, you do not harden your heart. In fact, let me plead with you with all of the love of Christ. Jesus has done everything possible for you to enter His rest and to know His peace and to not come under His judgment. So do not reject Him who speaks to you and offers that to you and says to you, put your faith in Jesus. By the way, that's not me. That's the Lord that speaks that word to you. That says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest is only found there. And you cannot stand up to God's judgment on your own work. But you can come boldly before the throne of grace now and know that you will receive mercy and grace because that is what God gives to everyone who enters His rest by faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, trust God that He will be a just judge against evil. Many times we look around the world and, and maybe even in our own life and we had horrible things, some of us happened to us, right? Some of you, I know your story. And I know that when I talk about evil being done to you, there's a person's face that comes up in your mind as a person who did horrible, unspeakable evil to you. But trust me on this when I say you do not have to seek revenge for yourself. God is a just judge. And He will settle accounts. And His arms are longer than yours. God is the righteous judge. One day, evil will be permanently defeated. It will be totally eliminated from your experience along with the pain and suffering that evil people, evil demons, and even the evil within your own heart has caused in your life. God has dealt with all of that. And He will deal with that permanently and forever. And lastly, make disciples. Some of you are like, what are you getting that, Pastor? Is that just because it's in our mission statement? Well, no, that's true, but that's here's the reality of this. If you look at if you look at Joshua and Judges, what you see is that a generation that fails to effectively teach its descendants to follow and obey the Lord is one that unleashes the whirlwind on its own children and grandchildren. 
you want to know why the world in America right now is a mess is because we did not effectively make disciples of our own children in the last two generations. So as long as we're alive, we are called by God to go and make disciples. First with our own kids. If our kids are grown, with our grandkids. And then with people of every kind around the world. Beginning where we are, and then to our wider community, and then to our nation, and then to nations and peoples all over the world. We are called to make disciples. That all kinds of people, and this is God's purpose, that all kinds of people from every tribe and language and nation and group all over the world would enjoy the blessings of knowing Jesus instead of the chaos that comes when everyone does whatever is right in their own eyes. Amen? Well, let's pray. God, our Father, we thank You that You are the giver of peace through faith in Jesus. We thank You that You are a just judge who doesn't call us to do whatever is right in our eyes, but whatever is right in Your eyes and enables us by Your Holy Spirit to do it. Father, I pray that we might be bold in making disciples that we might trust You to deal with the evil of our world in a just way. And further, Father, that we, if there's anyone here who has never put their faith in You, that today would be the day. Father, just even as I'm praying to You, that I pray that You'd be working in their heart. And that you would be knocking on the door of their heart and they would come to the door and let Jesus in. That they would recognize their sin, realize they have lived in peace in their whole life up to now. They've been trying to come up with a way on their own. And that they have all failed. But you offer peace that lasts. Father, I pray that you would find them and they would find your peace. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.